My wife's sister lives in England and her daughter is about 13, goes to a high school. She was wearing one of my shoes. The PE teacher said, you cannot wear those shoes for PE. And she said, well, why not? I says, well, those are um, fashion shoes. They're not trainers. <laughs> And uh, she said, well, you know, my, my uncle won Wimbledon in those shoes. And uh, <laughs> so they were really the high-tech uh, performance shoe back in, in the 70s. Now it's, it's low-tech, but it's, it's fashion. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It's this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast Beyond the Baseline. This week, we have a fashion icon as a guest. He also happens to be a former Wimbledon champion, U.S. Open champion, and Tennis Hall of Famer. It is Stan Smith, whose eponymous footwear sells tens of millions of units. Walk around the East Village, not far from where I live, and you will see countless hipsters wearing Stan Smith shoes. You wonder if they know that the Man behind the footwear is, in fact, a 70-year-old former tennis player who now lives at Hilton Head, South Carolina. He is an exceptionally nice and warm-hearted guy. I am not entirely sure he is on the cutting edge of trendy, but in some meta kind of way that only makes it more fashionable. Anyway, Stan is a great guy, and um, we were able to catch up with him, talk a little bit about the shoe that has overtaken all of his tennis achievements as his defining characteristic. We talked a little bit about college tennis. We talked a little bit about teaching tennis. Uh, Lovely conversation with a lovely man. The man behind the hippest footwear going, unlikely as that may be. Thanks for spending some time. Stan, how are you? I'm doing fine. Are you in New York? I'm here in New York. Where are you in... uh... Well, I was in New York on Sunday. It was freezing. I was going to say, uh, you, that was Russia Day. That, you, that was like the worst weather sleeting, right? It was sleeting, yeah. The streets were kind of mushy with, you know, sleet. It was really weird. It's, but, uh, it's, I'm in sunny Hilton Head now. It's like 75 degrees. It's unbelievable. for <laughs> winter. But, but you don't have sleet in Hilton Head. Um, nice seeing no. you, uh, nice no. you a few weeks ago in, uh, in, in Melbourne. I came back. Yes. I, I came back and I saw a New York Magazine story. There was a great piece on you in Sports Illustrated that we will link. But I saw a great piece on you with a great headline: "The kids think I'm a shoe." <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah, that's a that was a nice picture. It had almost it almost had a whole family. We're missing two people, but uh, it was an interesting photograph they used. They took about a thousand photographs and used uh, that one. When, when did they and, take uh, that over over the holidays? They took it in December, yeah, December, early December, or January, I forget. So, so give us the, uh, I'm sure everybody asked you this, but everybody loves to hear this. What, what's what's the origin story? I mean, pe- people say, how, how did it come to be that uh, this this lovely man is, is the eponym of the best-selling shoe of all time? How, how did this come to be? The shoe story? Yeah, what's the shoe well, story? Well, yeah, back in... Uh, you know, in 65, Horace Dostler, who was a son of Adi Dostler, uh, and Robert Hayet, who was the number one French player at the time, uh, created the first leather tennis shoe. And um, they did it in France, and Horace was sort of working out of France. As, you know, the family was in Germany, but he was sort of estranged in a way, but, uh, and, and working in France, and, and he created this with 
Robert. And then in 71, they, they were looking to get a, a bigger presence in the United States. And I happened to be the number one player at the time. And so that we talked about the possibility of putting my picture on the shoe and keeping his name on the shoe for a while, then transitioning his name off the shoe. And, and lo and behold, that's what happened. They, they took a photograph of me for about a, it was about a six month period where I didn't have a mustache. They took a <laughs> photograph, they put it on the shoe and uh, Robert's name was on the shoe and my name in different places for about four or five years. And then uh, Robert's name went off the shoe and it, uh, it became, uh, you know, a pretty popular shoe. They took it off the market though in 12 and 13 because it was losing sort of its niche a little bit and, and getting discounted in a few stores. And so, they told me they were going to release it or relaunch it in uh, in 14, January 14. I didn't really, I was a little skeptical of the whole process, although they had done it with a superstar and it had been successful. So, lo and behold, on uh, January 15th of uh, 14, it was released, uh, relaunched again worldwide, and, and I've been doing some traveling ever since. Uh, talking about it but it's uh they they did a they did a very different strategy they they did totally through social media right no print ads no radio no tv and and uh ken has offered to actually help me with a tv part with adidas but they were they had this concept and it really was effective they had uh so-called influencers you know they sent the shoe with their picture on it instead of my picture and asked them to put on their social media that was one of the first things they did and then they yeah, you know now they've got Pharrell and Kanye West working <laughs> on it, and and Rob Simmons are doing some collaborations with different uh, different designers, artists, and um, and different shoe companies that uh, make leather. And so it's uh, it's it's gotten hyped up, and and uh, kids are wearing it, adults are wearing it, men or women are wearing it, women are wearing it. Uh, it's uh, and little babies are wearing it. It has gotten hyped up. I, I suspect. Uh... Forty-five years ago, when when your uh, your name and your mustacheless face appears on a shoe, you did not expect that in 2017 you were going to be talking about how. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I bet fashion icon was not uh, one of your ambitions. Is this um? You, in all serious, I mean, have you have you gotten used to this? This this must be uh, well, quite, quite a trip for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to get used to it. It's, uh, being called a fashion icon is always a funny story, but uh, it's it really is kind of fun. I mean. The thing that over the years people have come to me like in Harlem and said, you know, my shoe was really big in the hood and and these pop culture uh, artists, uh, you know, in Manchester, England, apparently the, the shoe to wear if you're a musician in that in that area of the world, you know, that's the shoe to wear and and it's uh, you know it's been popular in England and France, of course, is where it's you know the, the birth of the shoe really and um, you know the U.S. is done well in, in Asia I was in Tokyo and it, it was amazing how many folks are wearing the shoe and Greece they actually had a situation where if you were christened uh, back in the mm-hmm. day the, the parents would or the grandparents or the parents would give the kids a pair of white shoes and uh, my shoe was sort of the shoe and so it was very well known in Greece which was uh, uh, news to me until I was there about two years ago and, and so the Interesting thing about it, people have stories about it of their own. What, what do you, In fact, what do you I'm going to write is? a book. I'm doing a, I'm doing a book, and I heard, I heard that. Yeah, tell me about right that. Now. That's great. About about the shoe, and right? So, um, yeah, the book is going to be primarily about the shoe, and it's and it's going to you know be photographs and history, and 
and quotes from people like Hugh Grant told me at Wimbledon this year at the Royal Box that he the first girl ever kissed was wearing my shoe. I mean, it was a, a random remark. That um, so we're going to have remarks hopefully <laughs> from different people like that. And then, and then my biggest uh, fun thing would be to to go to the general public and say, okay, uh, you know, we want to get some stories from different people, just the average person of what the shoe means to them. Right. And, uh, and this, the author is going to help me kind of categorizes the shoe as a, as a shoe of the world, you know, not just, uh, you know, one part of the world, but it's, it's been popular all over the place. What, what do you think it is? I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously there's certain elegant simplicity. This is not a shoe that's going to cost you thousands of dollars unless you get them highly customized. I mean, what do you think it is that you have this, this global popularity that's endured so much? Well, for one thing, I don't think it's me. <laughs> Secondly, I think it's a, a simple shoe. You know, it's just, uh, uh, it's one of those things where it's not got too many bells and whistles. It's very simple. It's clean. It's, uh, it's a good price point. Um, and you can do all sorts of clothes with it. You can do it with uh, cutoffs and jeans and tuxedos. And so it's uh, it's one of those things that's very, very uh, diverse as far as its use. And so, you know, I don't know. It's just uh, it's kind of that the simplicity. I think is maybe the main thing. Just to be clear, you you, you played in this. I mean, it, I lo- lovely shoes. We all have pairs, but not not what I would call a performance shoe. You you played in those things, didn't you? Well, the funny thing about it, I have a, um, my my wife's sister lives in England, and her daughter is about thirteen, goes to a, a private school there, and it's a high school. So the she was wearing one of my shoes, uh, you know, my my shoes, and so the PE teacher said, "You cannot wear those shoes for PE." And she said, "Well, why not?" I says, "Well, those are um, fashion shoes; they're not trainers." <laughs> And uh, she said, well, you know, my, my uncle won Wimbledon in those shoes. And uh, <laughs> so they were really the high-tech uh, performance shoe back in in the 70s. And, in fact, players wanted to wear those shoes, the first leather shoe. And we were wearing canvas before that. And so it was really high-tech. And now it's, uh, it's low-tech, but it's, it's fashion. Your, your royalty rate is it's, it's like a 50-50 split, right? Yeah, I get fifty or sixty dollars per shoe. You know, it's <laughs> nice. <but> uh, <laughs> you, uh, I, I, I suspect you did not negotiate that deal uh, forty-five years ago, anticipating in twenty seventeen no. that Kanye and, uh, and and Pharrell would be wearing your shoes. Well, it's uh, it's one of those mysteries, you know. It, it, certainly, you know when you you know all the players over the years have had contracts. And they usually last for, you know. It's a four-year deal or a three-year deal. Sometimes it can be a six-year deal, and I just renewed mine, you know, each year, and each deal was a little different, uh, and uh, it's continued on. So uh, it's one of those, uh, I guess, mysterious things that, uh, that that took place back 45 years ago. In all seriousness, I mean, you you mentioned you were a Wimbledon champion. You were. A U.S. Open champion, you're number one player in the world, Hall of Famer. Has it been a little strange that to you know my my son and his friends, for example, your your ten your your fashion icon first, and if they know you played a sport, they may as well think you played basketball. I mean, is it a little strange that your tennis achievements uh, 
might might be subsumed at some level by the popularity of this this thing we put on our feet. Well, there's there's two stories I usually say to that. Is one time I gave a clinic and uh, to a bunch of twelve and thirteen year olds in uh, Durham. North Carolina, and I said, well, I didn't want to use my name because they wouldn't, probably wouldn't know who I was. I said, oh, how many of you want to be like Bjorn Borg? You know, he's seven or eight years younger than me, and they looked at me like, you know, who's he, you know? And, and so it really made me realize that, uh, you know, history is, is history, and, and, you know, people aren't expected to know people forever. And um, that's one thing. And then the other thing is that um, is the people don't necessarily uh, know, let's say, even Jack Kramer, for instance, or, um, you know, Chuck Taylor, you know, the great Chuck Taylor shoe, or Jack Purcell's shoe, or even more modern era, you know, of, of you know, Jack, you know, Michael Jordan is still known, but, you know, he's known probably more as a shoe, and, and uh, they did a video in Paris last year and they asked people in the street, do you know who Stan Smith is? And they said, well, one guy says, uh, yeah, I think he played basketball. Another one <laughs> said, uh, maybe he was a runner. And they said, I, another guy said, I have no clue. And uh, usually I tell people about 95% of people in the world have no idea who I am. And my wife usually chimes in and says 99% of the people in the world have no idea who you are. <laughs> you told me, uh, you're, you're, you're very gracious about this. Didn't you, didn't you tell me at one point, uh, I don't know, maybe you were kidding, that your son said, Dad, were you named after the shoe or was the shoe named after you? No, that's a, that's become a famous quote now from my eight-year-old son at the time. And uh, he's a little wise guy that I had to beat up a little bit, but he did say something like that. It's, t- that t- was cute. T- t- what do your kids make of this? My kids are, are enjoying the deal. They, they used to call the, my shoe the Smithers. You know, all their kids, all their buddies in school would call them the Smithers. And uh, and and I guess not in the I guess the Adidas circles they call them the Stands, um, just to delineate from anything else. But uh, they they get a kick out of it, and and all the different articles and things that take place. This is the latest one uh, in uh, in New York, uh, the New York Magazine has a photograph of our whole family except right, right. it's missing it's missing one of my daughters-in-law and a baby but uh he took a bunch of shots and they used this one that uh, was kind of cute people are in white you know white tennis shoes my shoes of course and then white clothing and then i'm in a green tracksuit and they had me do it in white they had me do it in green they had the kids doing all sorts of things and it it's uh, it's gonna be a fun shot for our family because it but we'll get one that has everybody included. And, um, and you know, three of my four kids were captains of their college teams. And so they were, you know, they've really played tennis and, and enjoyed tennis. And uh, so it, it's the, one of the things that I love the most is that the kids really have played tennis and now the grandkids, who knows, but uh, uh, you know, it, that's, I, I'm very proud of my little family. And now it's not 20 people. And and your son your son Ramsey of course is a coach, coach at Duke, right? Yeah, Ramsey's coaching at Duke, and um, and he's head he's in head coach now. I think this is eighth year, and he went to Duke. His wife went to Duke, and uh, my sister in law went to UNC. My daughter went to UNC. So we got some problems in the house. Yeah, no kidding. Um, you uh, will will make a joke about academic integrity another time. But um, what what do you make of college? I mean, you you played college tennis as well. What what do you make about 
what, what do you think of college tennis these days, especially having having a son coaching? I mean, it seems from the outside like this has been a very nice resurgence, and as, as careers have gotten longer, college tennis is you know makes more sense as an option. Are, are you seeing this this renaissance of college tennis from where you where you, where you are? Well, I, I think so. You know, when I was the director of coaching for the USPA program, uh, I was uh, an advocate then that you know if if you were to play uh, in you know, you want to try to, you know, win the national juniors if you can, then, then do some international success uh, in the juniors, and then go to college. And at, at any point in time, any minute in time in college, you can turn pro. Right. But you, if you turn pro and you sign that box at the U.S. Open that you're playing as a pro, uh, you can't go back. Um, uh, they actually have a rule now. I think you win, you can win up to ten thousand dollars and still be eligible to play college tennis, but. Um, you know, I, you look at uh, certainly John Isner is is a prime example. But, you know, James Blake went for two years, and the Bryans went for two years. A lot of players went for two years. You know, fifteen twenty years ago, but we're seeing. I think we're seeing players getting a a great opportunity to have a terrific uh, practice facilities, practice partners, coaches, trainers, uh, and and. and obviously the opportunity to get education, which is the most important thing. And then if you really dominate or do really well in college, you can turn pro. But if you do the other way around, as many have, you know, about 10 years ago, we had about five or six guys that just turned pro, didn't go to college at all. And, and none of those guys are playing. Brian Baker has actually made a comeback. But, uh, right, right. So, you know, I, I think that the, that, is, that is a path. It's not necessarily the path for everybody. Andy Roddick, you know, came out and just, you know, he, he won a 75 at 17, and he was on that fast track. Um, right. But, and, you know, uh, top if 10 you have player. a good college coach, my college coach was always helped me develop. I mean, he said the most important thing is for you to develop your game. And and the fortunate thing I had was one of the last people that I didn't have, I didn't play as a freshman. He couldn't play as a freshman. So I had a chance to really work on my game for that year because I was a little behind everybody else. And, now you go into college and you gotta you gotta perform right away and the coaches' expectations are for you to be, you know, on the team competing and winning right away. So that hurts a little bit of the development. But the good coaches in college are, are developing players; they're getting better. Um, the no ad system, I think, is good and bad. I, I think it certainly, you know, puts puts you under pressure right away all the time, and right. that's not that's not terrible for for development, but it's. Uh, I think the college, you know, there are a lot of good college programs around, and, uh, and obviously that you have a chance to get an education too if things don't work out for your tennis. I wanted to ask you. We we talked. Uh, this must have been two years ago when we were doing the Barnstormers documentary for Tennis Channel, and you. I remember you told a story about how at Wimbledon one year, I think you got a twenty-five. What you got like a twenty-five pound coupon to spend at the gift shop, and <laughs> not not unlike the shoes, you you were very good humored about it. But I, I do wonder. Have you found peace with all the money that, looking back, you may have left on the table for not being paid to be a tennis player for all those years? You see players today, you know, making six-figure checks for getting to the third round of uh, of majors. How have you dealt with looking back on your career and thinking about all the uh, the money you were denied? Well, the way I look at it is uh, Chuck McKinley, Frank Froling, uh Dennis Rawson even. Dennis did play pro tennis, but 
those guys were only four, five, six years younger than older than me, and uh, they did not get the opportunity to, to get any kind of professional uh, experience and prize money. And so, you know, I, I have no regrets. Uh, I had a great career. I think my total prize money was 1.7. Uh, it came out in an article somewhere lately, and and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it, it is kind of fun to kind of look at. That's uh, not counting won, shoes. Like, let's uh, be clear. Eleven or twelve tournaments, and uh, those probably would have added up to maybe ten million dollars, something like that. But uh, you know, that was that was then, and uh, now is now. It's a total. It's a matter of um, supply and demand, you know, and, and the fact that it is a business now, and, and uh, it's driven by sponsors and by television and by the fans that come into the, to see the tennis and. I think it's great. I think it's great. I, I, the only thing that, that uh, bothers me and some of the older players is that the players today may not really appreciate it as much and also may not do enough to promote it for the next guys, the next generation. I mean, they should be uh, on their knees thanking Rod Laver, you know, for all that he did and Arthur Ashe for all that he did and, and the guys that really helped create the tour as it is today. That's the only thing that gets to me but then it goes back to my analogy with a shoe and the history is that you know players aren't expected to necessarily know about history they don't really there's no uh there's not a uh, requirement that they right. know about history they're playing today you know and they're playing with today's rules and against today's players and so you know uh, uh, bottom line is I have no problem with what's uh, what's going on today in tennis. I think it's great to see tennis going so well. Did did you stick around for the finals in Australia? Were you there for the last Sunday? Yeah, I was there. Yeah, that was a uh, <laughs> you know I, I I was helping a you know a group there and uh, I wrote a little post post mortem of the uh, weekend. I said, what you know this is never going to happen again. When could you have seen arguably the best player in the world? come back and win a uh, five-setter, arguably playing against a guy, Nadal, who is arguably the best player to ever play if he plays for the five years and wins, you know, seven or eight more Grand Slams. The trophy being presented by arguably the best player that's ever played the game. Yeah, I, I was, I was going to say that, that um, I, I, I hear what you're saying about players today, but but I feel like Federer and Nadal have this reverence for Laver. Um, you know, they're, they're obviously yeah. holding this Laver Cup later on this, this year, but... When Laver was before he even presented the trophy, when those guys found out that he would be sitting in the back of the court watching the match, that really meant a lot to to both of those guys. I I, I thought they're yeah. Federer and Nadal have a really nice connection. I think with um with with some of the tennis players that came before them. But well, as I said, players aren't required to know history, but some players do, and right. certainly Federer and Nadal, Djokovic uh, is the same way, and Murray. They those guys have done their homework and they do know the past players they do understand i think winning grand slams and that's why it's fun to be part of the international tennis hall of fame and and to see these players get inducted because many times they don't really appreciate it until they get there and they see that arguably every great player that's ever played the game is in the hall of fame and they're now in that fraternity right and so it's it's very significant uh and these guys who know that they're going to be in the Hall of Fame already uh, have that feeling of what it is to be considered one of the best players in the world. What, what do you think? My, my readers, um, more than—I'm always surprised by this, but the 
who gets in the Hall of Fame and what the criteria are and, and X player got in but Y got denied is, is always really a, a source of debate. Um, as, as president of the Hall of Fame, you're you're okay with the, the standards as they are that in some cases one slam will get you in? Where, where do you sort of enter this whole discussion? Well, you know, uh, in the last six months, Todd Martin and I have been going through the whole policies and procedures for the Induction Hall of Fame. And uh, we've made some dramatic changes, which uh, hopefully will be approved um, in March. We've gone through a subcommittee of the uh, Enshrinement Nominating Committee. We've gone through the, the whole nominating committee. Then we're going to go to the executive board to go through these new policies and procedures. And, and our feeling is we want to keep the stature of the Hall of Fame at a very high level, um, and not only for players, but for contributors. And so we, we, we are in the process of making these changes, and, and uh, we want the credibility of those in the Hall of Fame to be um, unquestioned. And, and, and we, we, the nominating committee, I'm the chairman of the nominating committee, the, right. the nominating committee puts those players on the ballot, and then the voters are the ones who, who decide. You know, the nominating committee or the officers of the Hall of Fame have no control of who's voted in, but they they do, uh, this committee puts them on the ballot, and then the voters are, are the ones. And so part of this whole change that we're doing uh, and uh, is to make sure that the voters are educated, as well as the enshrinement nominating committee are educated uh, and really understand the, the credentials of those players that are being considered and the voters understand those credentials of the players that are being considered and uh, and the, the you know the players that deserve to be in there you know do get in I mean again we can't control what the voters do and so what, part of it is an educational process for the voters you know if you have somebody like you know you you've seen tennis almost every week uh, some of the voters may not be quite as involved, so we're going to vet some of those voters so that we make sure that the ones that are actually voting right, really right. have the knowledge of today's game right. of those of those players so that they are uh, knowledgeable and, and, and accurate in their assessment. And then um, so we may, we may have a, a smaller group of voters than we do now because of that. But um, if the voters are educated and are really... Um, involved in the game and have watched the game and have seen the comparisons of players, then they'll make the right decision. If they're not, then that's when we can get in trouble. But but you're okay with sort of the, the standards as they are being fairly, you know, fairly subjective. You, you, you don't see a day coming when they say, hey, you need to have won three majors and been number one for X weeks and sort of having more hard, fast criteria than we do well, now. Well, we're, we're, we're putting down some more um, obvious things where um, – we don't have to discuss them too much, um, but uh, that's part of this whole process we're, we've gone through here. So I, I was on a plane, um, when was this? Maybe a year ago, and you know, the woman's making chit-chat. Oh, you know, I, t- tennis is sort of my, my guilty pleasure. And she says, oh, do you, have you ever heard of Stan Smith? And I thought she was going to say, we love his shoes. Um, she went a different <laughs> direction and said, he gave me the best tennis lesson I've ever gotten. Um, said Stan, really? Stan Smith is out there giving tennis lessons. Oh yeah, yeah, he taught me. He really helped my backhand, and she had a whole. Here she really sold you. Uh, she, she she sold you very hard as an excellent tennis pro. Are you are you still oh, uh, are you still giving private lessons? 
Well, you, you've got me off the court right now. We have the academy starting at 2 o'clock, and uh, we have about 45 or 50 kids here in this Smith Stearns Tennis Academy, and, and one of my pleasures is to be able to go out and, and uh, work with the kids personally. And You know, I wasn't the greatest, uh, or I didn't play the longest, and I probably wasn't the most talented player in the world, but I worked pretty hard at it, and then... Uh, and so I, and then I also was told to, t- to teach people when I was about 16, I had to give back to this little clinic that I was doing on Saturday mornings that Pancho Segura was the coach of. And at 12 o'clock, we had, we had a motto, each one teach one. So the better players in this little clinic had to teach from 12 to 1 beginners. And so I did that. Then I had an arm injury where I couldn't play for a while. I had to play left-handed for a while. And that gave me a little more of a appreciation of how difficult the game is and, and made me think about it. Then I've written for a tennis magazine for, for about 30 years. I wrote articles and I had a, a tennis um, column in, uh, in a franchise newspaper around the world. And, and uh, so I had to think about how to describe things. And, and so I've done a lot of that at work. And so I think I have a pretty good feel of the fundamentals and what really is, is critical in, in stroke production and strategy and, and, and match play and that sort of thing. So I, like I say, it's a real honor for me to go out there and, and work with the kids individually or even as a group to try to help them to appreciate not only, you know, how to play, but also why to play and, and what the great things that come out of tennis and uh, encourage them to go to college. We try to, we try to get them matched academically and, tennis-wise, with the right college that they can continue to play. And the, those four years in college, even to me, were four of my best years of tennis, um, you know, with the team and, at, and with at, the competition. In California. And, uh, in at USC. At, at USC, yeah. right, right, right. Um, last question. What what are you wearing on your feet right now? I got some barricades, um, the Adidas barricades, and uh, those are my working shoes. And uh, so I don't, I don't normally wear my fashion shoes on the court I was anymore. Say, I, I was waiting for you to shoes. say you had you had po- polka dotted Stan Smith signed by Kanye. I was ready to hear uh, fluorescent <laughs> lights in the back. Um, you're working that, that's wearing... for tonight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, this was great. I really appreciate this. You are. Uh, I, I don't want. I mean, I want people to know what an exceptional tennis player you were. I'm glad you're a fashion icon uh, at this stage in the game. But I, I, I don't. I do want people to know that you were a Wimbledon champion and a former number one player as well. And, uh, not just the guy behind the shoes that, uh, that hip hop stars wear. And this is the first time. I I don't think we've ever heard that. I don't think we've ever heard, uh, I don't think we've ever heard the word crew on this podcast before. I don't think we've, you've introduced some hip lingo to us as well. So, uh, so I thank you for that. (laughs) Okay. Get back out there on the court. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. See you in Wells. You got it. Thanks, Dan. All right, that does it for this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. Thanks for joining us. That was Stan Smith. Big thanks to him. Um, again, I think you can see why he is uh, so well-liked and why there's a certain irony in a nice, funny kind of way um, about this man being the uh, the name behind the hippest fashion and footwear. Um, thanks to our producer, Jamie Lasanti. As always, we will have another Hall of Famer allegedly next week. This is a female. I think you know her work. That's all I'll say. Um, but thanks for joining us again. That was Stan Smith. That was a lot of fun. We'll do it again next week. Thanks for listening. 
And we'll see you in seven days on the Sports Illustrated Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. We'll be right back.